Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the spirit you put to death, the, but if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you, live, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is God's word. Spirituality, as I was saying before, is a real uh, buzzword in 20, 21st century Western countries. So this week I consulted an expert on spirituality, Mr. Google, and uh, this, is, this is what I came up with when I just plugged in spirituality. There is no single or widely agreed definition of spirituality. Uh, not a good start. Uh, one scholar uh, researched the term in its contemporary use. He discovered 27 definitions of spirituality, most of which had no overlap. Uh, that is, all sorts of different ideas. However, he said, here are the most common elements. It includes a sense of connection to something bigger than ourselves, or this. It typically involves a search for the meaning of life. Now, those who are followers of the Lord Jesus, you know that uh, being a Christian is a profoundly 
spiritual experience. But from there, uh, in my talking with Christians over three decades, or you know, that bit longer than that, Christians describe their spiritual experience of God quite differently. Uh, and it depends a lot on background, um, the sort of influences they've had as they've thought this one, one through. So uh, some talk of um, uh, a spiritual experience of God being a, a deep relational intimacy uh, involving you know, profound emotions and that sort of depth of understanding. Uh, they can speak of God guiding them in sort of moment-by-moment moment decisions that they make every day in their lives, even uh, very, very minor ones. Uh, they can talk about the way in which God constantly speaks to them. I had a conversation with someone not that long ago who talked about um, a regular experience she had of a spiritual rush, you know, that, that sort of idea. And I think that that's pretty common as people think about the whole area. For others, uh, if I go to the other end of the spectrum, it can be more to do with conviction rather than feelings. Uh, and sometimes at this point, it, people who fall into this camp can sort of present uh, a spiritual experience as being more like an Ikea flat pack experience. Uh, let me explain what I mean. It's a bit like uh, you know, when you get flat pack furniture, you get instructions and you work out how to assemble uh, what should be simple but turns out to be quite complex. You know? Well, um, for Christians in this school, God has left instructions, the Bible, and then he withdraws to a distant place and rules from afar. And our job is to work out from the instructions how to put them into practice in our lives. And then in you know, 30, 40, 50 years' time when we die, we get together with God, we review you know, uh, what's happened and then press on in heaven. You know, sort of it's, it's quite a different sort of thing. And obviously I'm, I'm pushing out those, those extremes to give you some idea of what we're talking about in terms of people's, the way they talk about spirituality. Now, as I said before, three weeks, we're turning to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 summarises the first seven chapters of Romans with one word. And if you look at it, you'll see it there in verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore, that is, you know, we've got seven chapters of teaching, and he goes, therefore, this follows. And that's the point being made here. And the big truths of the first seven chapters are to do with how God uh, makes us right with himself by faith in Christ. The way in which God justifies the unrighteous, people who don't deserve to be made right with him. It's all to do with that. Then when we turn to Romans chapter 8, what is the especially new thing uh, that comes up? The new sort of topic for, for exploration. And it's actually the work of the Holy Spirit. So if I was to ask you to, uh, uh, to guess as to how many times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the first seven chapters of Romans, you know, what would you guess? Uh, would, I'll give you three options and I'll get you to put up your hands so that we can all participate, you know, okay? Uh, would, you, you know, would you think, you know, one to ten mentions, ten to twenty, or twenty to thirty mentions, okay? The Holy Spirit over seven chapters in Romans, okay? Now you can... That's okay, I'll give you... All right, who thinks one to ten? Okay, who thinks ten to twenty? Okay, who thinks twenty to thirty? Okay. Right? Pretty even spread, actually. Who didn't put up their hand? 
<laughs> First seven chapters of Romans, Holy Spirit is mentioned twice. Isn't that interesting? Who would have thought? There you go. Um, okay, let me... Uh, it's great. Musical background. That's excellent. Uh, <laughs> I come, no, no. <laughs> I wasn't trying to embarrass him. No, no, it's fine. I'm only kidding. When we get to um, Romans chapter 8, okay, we've, we've obviously read through the first half. How many, how many times do you reckon uh, Holy Spirit is mentioned here in this chapter? Right? Two times, seven chapters. Right? I'm going to give you three options. Uh, Nought to five, five to ten or 10 plus, okay? Right. 0 to 5. Okay, smart ones of you actually listened to the Bible reading and worked out that was more than 5 just in that, right? 5 to 10. Okay, more than 10. Yeah, okay. Now, the more than 10 are right. It's actually more than 20 uh, here in this chapter. So, 2 times 7 chapters, 20 times chapter 8. What do you think the focus here is in this chapter? It might be on the Holy Spirit, right? and, uh, and that's what we're going to do, explore what this chapter teaches us about this important topic. Okay, I've left you an outline in the leaflet, which might be useful to some of you, it may not, but uh, let me pray, and then let's look and see what God teaches us in his word about his Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are gracious to instruct us. Uh, Father, we thank you for your kindness in working in us when we don't deserve it. We know that's the truth from the first seven chapters of this letter. And Father, we pray that you'll help us to let you tell us how you work in us by your spirit as we explore together. Uh, Father, we uh, commend ourselves now to you in Jesus' name. Amen. What we discover in the first 11 verses of this chapter is that the Holy Spirit sets us free. Now, I get the fact that there are a lot of jargon words that are used that you would have picked up, and you might have felt even quite confused as we went through, you know, a spirit, law, flesh, you know, lots of different ideas that perhaps we don't use in quite the same way. In verse 2, we read this. The law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The idea of freedom here is uh, the opposite of slavery, and we're not talking about racial slavery uh, we're talking about slavery to sin, to living in a way that rejects God. That's what's on view here. And what we're told is that uh, by nature, uh, we're bound by the law of sin and death. And you know the experience of recognising a behaviour in your life which you know is in opposition to what God wants and finding it impossible to change that behaviour. Uh, I knew that constantly before I became a Christian, but even since then, there's a bit of a struggle that goes on with sin. It's that slavery to sinfulness that's going on. But we're told in verse 2, this is how God frees us uh, from that slavery. Through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you, through, set you free. And you pick it up in verse 3. Uh, God did, did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Uh, sinful flesh here is the idea of um, not so much flesh, but the life that's lived in rebellion against God, uh, rather than just skin and, and bone, right? And the picture here is the way in which God rescues us from our sin and the consequences of our rejection of him by sending his son to die on the cross, for our sin. Uh, Jesus is the sin substitute. He dies in our place 
so that we don't have to bear the consequences for our own sin. But here's the question I want you to think about. How does the Holy Spirit fit in here? Remember, we're talking about the work of the Spirit. So where does the Spirit fit into this reality? I want to suggest to you that you cannot understand the truth of Jesus' death for your sin and the forgiveness and everything that you benefit from there unless God's Spirit works in you to give you understanding of that. Now, in my own experience, I was at university uh, as a 19-year-old. I'd sat down with people and read through the Bible. I got to a point where I thought, yes, uh, I went from thinking, you know, Father Christmas, Easter Bunny, Jesus, uh, to thinking, no, a real person who did real things. I became convinced he died on the cross. I thought, in the balance of probability, he rose from the dead, and I thought, so what? I thought, oh, a clever trick, getting up from the dead. But, but it was interesting, history. Nothing more. I had a job at a supermarket stacking shells, uh, which meant I didn't have to think a lot. Uh, and I'm not rubbishing that, it just meant I had freedom to think about other things. And uh, as I was stacking shells one night, I remember having this extraordinary conviction of sin, a real conviction of my failure to treat God properly and the way in which I'd rubbished other people in the process as I went on. Now, at that point, you understand what was happening was I went from understanding the facts about Jesus' death to seeing that it had connection to me. Now, that's a work of God's spirit that brings about that conviction. I felt extraordinarily guilty and liberated at the same time. That's the freedom that's being spoken of here, the way the spirit gives us life and sets us free from that guilt and sin and its consequences. That's what's going on. So I guess I want to ask you this question. Do you know you're free from guilt and the condemnation that goes with that? And if you do, then that's a work of God's spirit in you, which is a wonderful, wonderful gift of God. We go on. The Holy Spirit transforms our minds as well. You pick it up in verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Uh, to be focused on the flesh is to be focused on the sinful nature, and that's to leave God out of the equation. Uh, the Spirit at work in our minds help us, helps us to live the way God wants us to. Now, at this point, it's not so much talking about... The spiritual mind is not so much having spiritual thoughts or ideas. The spiritual mind is about the preoccupation with serving God in this world. It's about ambition and desire and conviction about what you want to do with your life. Uh, you know, we heard from, from Jethro just a few moments ago. Uh, he's, coming, he's come through college... And because of his understanding of the work of God in this world and in his life, he wants to serve God in Christian ministry. So that's a change of view. I caught up with another couple this week who really capable professionals, both of them, again with two kids, uh, have trashed their professional 
careers, well-paying professional careers to go to Bible college to become Christian ministers. Now, how stupid is that? According to the world. Do you understand? Like, trash of money, um, all the consequences that come with that. Why would you do that? It's not even a popular career choice these days. You know, is it Colin? No one likes Colin. Do you know? Do you do it? It's, it's not a popular sort of way to go. So why do we young couple with the world at their feet do it? Well, it's because they have a conviction of mind that is ambition and direction about serving the Lord Jesus in the world. Now, you don't need to give up your day job to do that, to be doing it, do you understand? But, but it's all to do with that sort of preoccupation that's going on here. It also affects the way we think about people around us. Let's pick it up in verses 8 and 9. Um, those in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Or verse 9, if anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Now, is this saying if you don't have the Holy Spirit and are not a Christian, you cannot do anything to please God? Absolutely, that's exactly what it's saying. I've just paraphrased what exactly what it says. And then you might say, hey, okay, well, but aren't there nice living atheists or agnostics or Muslims or, you know, surely they do good things. And you need to understand the argument of the book of Romans here. Uh, the argument is essentially that if you're not, if you don't belong to God, if you're not in Christ, you're not in his family and therefore you can't actually essentially please him because by definition you're in opposition to him. Uh, and therefore, actually, the reality is we see people either being in Christ or not in Christ. That gives us sharp clarity about where they sit both now and for all eternity. It's not popular. I sat down with a friend of mine now a couple of years ago, someone I'd known for a long time. And uh, we'd been talking about the gospel, you know, about Jesus in different ways. And he said, if, if what you're saying is true then you're saying your God of love is condemning me to hell. I had a sense that our relationship was on the borderline at this point. Uh, because that's exactly what I think. But, but not because I don't love him or care for him, but because I do understand that from God's perspective, you're either on his team or you're not. That's the reality being spoken of here. The Holy Spirit also gives life to our mortal bodies. You pick that up in verses 9 through 11. Uh, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death, everyone here is subject to death, that is, you will die. Uh, that's the point. Even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Um, Rebellion against God resulted in death being introduced into this world, uh, the grief, the heartache, the sadness and the loss. But the Holy Spirit transforms our thinking about the future. Verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Now that is a transforming perspective on life. Um, 
you know, I was talking to Jane just before the service started about her dad, Bruce, who's now 95. Yeah, okay. He is actually closer to death than what he was 20 years ago, right? And we're just talking about that, actually, uh, the, the, the reality of it. But he's a man who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ and is secure. I remember preaching a few years ago, and I was saying that um, given our genetic backgrounds, right, the men in my side of the family tend to die of heart attacks when they get to 60, and the women on Sue's side of the family tend to live until their 90s, and therefore we worked out that Sue would probably uh, be a widow as long as she was married to me, you know, on average, based on backgrounds, you know. I remember after I preached that sermon, uh, someone came up to me and rebuked me and said, you ought not think that way, you know, I'm sure God will give you a long and fruitful life and ministry. And I said, oh, he might, right? I'm not opposed to that. <laughs> but do you understand the point, of, the point? I said, the point I'm making, though, is that that's not the key. You see, the key is that my life is here with Christ and I will be with him for eternity, no matter how short or long this life is in this world. That dominates the perspective of the Christian because of the work of the Holy Spirit bringing about those convictions, okay? Approval. Um, <laughs> what we have here is uh, these first 11 verses, they, they set up the framework for understanding the key things to do with being a Christian, which is wonderful. Then we come to these more controversial verses, I think in verses 12 to 17, on how the Holy Spirit leads us. Okay, chapter 8, verse 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? Is it primarily about decision-making, you know, where to live, how much to spend on a house, where do you send your kids to school or your home school, uh, what sort of job should I do, what colour should I paint my kitchen? You know, you could think about all those sort of questions. And... Um, and I think there's a spectrum of Christian thinking about it. But, but what I want to ask is the question about what, what, what are we being taught here as what it means to be led by the Spirit? So what does Roman, Romans 8 teach us? And what we discover is to be led by the Spirit is to put to death sin. That's what it means. Verse 13. You have an obligation, we're told in verse 12. In verse 13, it's to put to death the misdeeds of the body. It's to reject sin. That is, whatever is inconsistent with the relationship with God. That's where the Spirit's leading us. Uh, Romans 1, you could go back there and look at the elements of sin that are mentioned there. Uh, greed or gossip, uh, jealousy, envy, sexual immorality. You see, at this point, being led by the Spirit is less to do with guidance and more to do with holiness of life. Now, uh, you're probably thinking at this point, if you're a follower of Jesus already, well, I still um, struggle with sin and temptation. You know, there are, there are you might be someone who struggles with pornography or anger, that arises, or maybe you're someone who is um, a jealous person and struggles with envy. And you may think, well, therefore, that's an indication 
I'm not led by the Spirit, so maybe I'm not a Christian. You know, you could work it through that way. Can I say, if, you, if you're aware of that struggle in your life, that's actually a mark of having the Spirit. See, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't struggle. Right? You're, you're a slave to sin. But if you're aware of that struggle and your desire uh, is to live for the honour of God, it's a mark of the Spirit. We go on. We're told being led by the Spirit means you have no fear of judgment. That's what it means to be led into confidence. Verse 15, the Spirit you received doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Uh, don't know if you picked up the logic, but it's the idea of if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian, you're a slave to sin, and therefore you'll be in fear of judgment. Because sin's not been dealt with, therefore you cannot face up to God. That's the natural consequence. But if you have the Holy Spirit, you're a believer, you will, by definition, be someone concerned to put death to sin, and you won't have any fear of judgment because sin was dealt with by Jesus on the cross. Confidence before God. There's a, Sue and I both have legal backgrounds, and there's a principle at criminal law which is called double jeopardy. Basically what that means is you cannot be tried and convicted of the same offence twice, right? Only once, okay? And it's the same here. You see, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and when you put your trust in him, the punishment has been paid. Therefore, you cannot be punished for your sin because Jesus has paid for it, you see? That's the confidence that the Christian has. And then we discover as you get towards the end of this section... The wonderful intimacy with God that the Spirit brings you into. It's like this sort of wave of fresh air that just sort of blows in. The Spirit you receive, verse 15, brought about your adoption to sonship. Uh, Sue and I have um, three kids born into our family, right? Ben, Kate, David. Ben's about 33, Kate... 30-ish, David 29-ish, roughly, you know. <laughs> now, we're stuck with them because um, <laughs> we gave birth to them and those bonds are just there forever, you know, sort of, it's just the way it works. Um, but notice here, it talks about being adopted into such a... Do you understand adoption is a choice? God made a choice to adopt you into his family. And if God has chosen you and given you his spirit, there's a wonderful security in that. Uh, you know, he's actually determined to have you in. And that breeds intimacy. Uh, verse 15. By the spirit we cry, Abba, Father. It's hard to work out how this translates, but, but it, it's an intimacy with the God who runs the universe. Um, the Minister of Trinity in the city on North Terrace has always had a connection with Government House. Uh, that means at different points I've had better or worse connections with the Governor of the state. And I remember on one occasion, Sue and I, when Sir Eric, Eric Neal was the Governor, were invited up just for an intimate little meal in their kitchen. Right? Their kitchen was about the same size as our house, but <laughs> by and by, you know, like... And, uh, and when I say sort of, you know, intimate... I still got an invitation telling me what I should wear 
and what, when time I should turn up. And there were just the four of us in the kitchen, apart from the two who were serving us, you know, but you, you get the point. But, and while it was intimate, uh, there was still, you know, I didn't, I didn't say, Eric, pass the peas, right? You know, it was, it was still Sir Eric. It was still, there was still a level of formality, even though it was very, very friendly. Friends, God's spirit brings us into an intimacy with the creator and ruler of the world. But it's not your excellency, God. It's not Sir God. Right? It is Abba, Father. Now, it's really hard to get the 21st century equivalent of this. Uh, yeah, people have suggested, oh, it's dear dad or daddy or dearest father. I could never have said to my father, dearest father. You know, that's it. You know, so you, you scramble around for the right sort of translation. Uh, we now have five grandchildren. The ones that can speak uh, call me papa, right? And when they turn up, they burst in through the back door, and it's assuming Sue's not around, because Grandma's still the favourite. But if she's not around, they'll rush up to me and grab me and go, Papa, Papa, Papa. You know, there's that sort of excitement. I think that's much more the content of the relationship that we're talking about here. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus actually uses the term when he prays. If you've got your Bibles there, just turn back to it, because I think it's a wonderful example of the content. Mark chapter 14. doesn't matter if you don't find it. I'll, uh, I'll read it to us. Um, context is Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not long before he's about to die on the cross. And he goes to a quiet place and he prays to his heavenly father. Verse 34, he says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, Stay here and keep watch. Then going on a little farther, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour, that is the hour of his death, might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Do you understand to know God as Abba Father is to be actually able to cry out to him at your point of greatest need, um, the most heartfelt distress, out of the deepest longing and to know that he loves you, he's trustworthy and that you can have confidence in his profound love. Abba, Father. And then finally the Spirit leads us into our inheritance. You pick it up in verse 17. And if, we, if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Inheritance, you like the sound of that, don't you? What do you get? Uh, well, co-heirs with Christ. Just a couple of words, but isn't that amazing? We share what Jesus gets. You're in the same position as the Lord Jesus at this point. Isn't that amazing? You'll be raised to life. 
and you'll be in the presence of your heavenly father alongside your brother, the Lord Jesus, who rules the world. What a privilege. Friends, true spirituality, um, I'm not saying it doesn't involve guidance or God answering us in the ins and outs of daily living. Don't get me wrong. But do hear me when I say there's something much more central about what it means to be someone in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. Christian spirituality, where does the Holy Spirit lead us? Uh, the Holy Spirit leads us into an intimacy of relationship with God, a God you can trust. Isn't that a wonderful thing? The Holy Spirit leads you into holiness of life. You don't want to live in a way that displeases God. You want to honour him with everything you have. And the Holy Spirit convicts you of the fact that God has secured you as his for all eternity. What's the mark of a spiritual church? Friends, it's one where we trust God and above all else, uh, want to honour him. That's the mark of spirituality. Can I pray for us? I'll pray that we'll be that sort of church. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for what is a wonderful uh, chapter in your word, uh, a chapter that keeps reminding us over and over again of what it means uh, to be people who've received grace and mercy from you, people in whom you've placed your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we can know relationship with you, forgiveness, uh, hope, confidence, and to know that we are always secure even in the midst of the greatest crises that are going on around us. Uh, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that you've secured us. And Father, we pray that we will be spiritual people. Uh, that is, we will live by the work of the Spirit in our lives to bring you glory and honour in this world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.